0: Thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the guardians of peace justice and, war, and, of evil, and the, war of the dark Knight. Welcome back to a People's History of the Old Republic, episode 7.1. She caught a fucking lightsaber. Last time, we began our series on SOTOR by covering the time from the end of KOTOR 2 to the beginning of the Great Galactic War. Now, we discuss all 28 years of the Great Galactic War as we continue making our way to the main story of Star Wars The Old Republic. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends.
1: Star Wars The Old Republic Part 1 The Great Galactic War from 3681 to 3653 before the Battle of Yavin. The year is 3681 BBY, and the true Sith are moments from beginning their invasion. The Republic and Jedi worked for 269 years, nice, to build from the Sith Civil War, and they did an admirable job, but nothing could prepare them for the storm that was about to be unleashed. As far as anyone in the Republic knows, the Sith Order was vanquished in 3951 at the end of the Sith Civil War, and members of the pure-blood Sith species have been extinct since the genocide in 4,999. The price for their lack of knowledge would be devastating, but it would not mean the destruction of either the Republic or Jedi because of the events of the first six movies. In the legend continuity, the Jedi have to fall in Order 66 and the Old Republic, which stood for a thousand generations, has to exist intact from 25,053 BBY to 1,000 BBY and the Russian Reformation. This is actually an interesting reason for the in-universe distinction between the Old Republic and the Galactic Republic that exists in the prequels, which we will discuss when we get to the new Sith Wars in 2000 BBY. The Jedi Order has a little more wiggle room, which we saw in KOTOR 2 and the first Jedi Purge. The Jedi Order can be nearly destroyed, even laid down low to less than 10 members, but it can't be fully broken until Order 66. While we're talking meta, we might as well note two rules that the story and background of SWTOR must abide before we start the narrative. The first is that no empire can fully overrun the Galactic Republic because Emperor Palpatine declared the first galactic empire in Revenge of the Sith. The first rule will become important later in this episode. The second rule is that everything has to reset to the normal galactic standard by 3500 BBY with the Jedi protecting the Republic and the old Sith popping up to cause trouble. This is because a dark lord named Darth de followed the old Sith ways and was established before the MMO the old Sith and the true Sith can't coexist for various reasons that take far too long to explain at this point, though we may be su- may do some short supplemental episodes. Anyway, just remember that Swotor essentially happens in a bubble, so everything has to go back to the normal we know before 3500.
0: But that doesn't matter now because, as promised, we're going to discuss the timeline leading up to SWTOR, and today we're discussing the Great Galactic War. Normally we would have character profiles for individuals like Maugus and Satel Shan, but we will have to save those for next episode. The Great Galactic War will last 28 years from 3681 to 3653. It is the second longest galaxy-spanning war in galactic history after the Hundred Years' Darkness. The war will kill thousands of Jedi and Sith, destroy countless worlds, and cause the deaths of billions of civilians. For a few reasons, the war will be chalked up as a win for the true Sith. But there's no total victory here. There's nothing even close. Instead, the Great Galactic War will end with a peace treaty despite the true Sith successfully sacking Coruscant. As we proceed, you'll notice that the dates get hazy the closer you get to the main game. And finally, remember that we're in 3681, and this timeline is all background info leading up to the game's main story, which doesn't commence for another 38 years. Uh, we won't get we won't get there until episode seven point three All the remaining episodes in series seven except one will follow the same descriptive timeline of event style we're using today. That will give us something of a high level view of the game, but that's the best we can do given the mountain of content right now we're in thirty six eighty one and two detachments of the true Sith fleet are massed and awaiting the sith emperor's orders. One will jump to a location within the Tingle Arm in the northeastern arm of the galaxy, mostly located in the Outer Rim, to meet the Republic under the guise of a diplomatic envoy. We'll discuss it in just a moment. The second detachment will jump to Korriban to retake the Sith homeworld. If you've seen the Old Republic cinematic called Return, you'll know what happens next all seemed normal on the Orbital Security Station above Korriban. This station was home to a garrison of Republic Special Forces soldiers and two Jedi, Cal Sanderik, a Zabrak, and his Padawan, Satil Shan. Recently, they intercepted a smuggler named Nico Okar, trafficking stolen artifacts on Korriban. Okar's ship, the Red Shifter, was impounded on the space station, which was fortuitous,
1: given what was about to happen. As Okar was being walked to his cell, Sattel sensed a tremor in the force and felt a great darkness. Seconds later, a fleet jumped out of hyperspace and the Sith Empire had returned. The Sith fleet consisted of no less than 30 Harbinger-class dreadnoughts and hundreds of small starfighters, a force of well over 30,000 soldiers and crew led by Lord Vindican and his Sith apprentice Malgus. They were under orders to stop the station from alerting the Republic. It almost worked because the Republic transports couldn't outrun the Sith fighters, but Okar volunteered the Red Shifter. Sith troopers and battle droids swarmed the station as Drat, Sean, Malcolm, and Okar fought their way to the ship. In the hangar, Okar and Malcolm prepped the ship while the two Jedi did battle with their true Sith counterparts. The duel was fast-paced with the Zabrak Jedi battlemaster saving his apprentice's life, throwing his lightsaber to block the killing blow after Malgus disarmed her. After more frantic blade work, there was a lull in the action, and Dirac a wise master, knew that Sean's future was too bright to let it end there above Korriban. Cow and Dirac sacrificed himself to give the redshifter and his apprentice time to escape. Sean threw her lightsaber to her master and grabbed Malcolm's hand as he pulled her on board, the and the smuggler's ship flew the coop. Durak, meanwhile, prepared to meet his fate, fending off both Sith, Lord, Vindic- both Sith. Lord Vindikon unleashed a f- blast of force lightning, and the Jedi b- battlemaster deflected it at Malgus, whose face was scarred as a result. After this, Durak was able to land a mortal blow on Vindicon, impaling the Sith Lord through the stomach. Malgus, however, is a force of nature who pries his master's lightsaber from his cold, near-dead hands and begins his onslaught. Shrouded in power and the dark side of the Force, Malgus charged while Durak threw debris using the Force. Malgus cut through it easily and the ensuing clash of lightsabers ended. When Malgus got the upper hand and cut, Kao sent Durak in half, killing him instantly. On the Redshifter, Satel Shan felt the death of her master through the Force just before they made the jump to hyperspace to warn the Republic. In the aftermath, Vindakan is killed by his apprentice Malgus. The True Sith had retaken Korriban, but one ship escaped.
0: Sutil, Sean, Maugus, and Jace Malcolm are three of the names you should definitely remember because they will be with us through the entire story. With their first offensive a rousing success, we turn to the other True Sith detachment disguised as a diplomatic envoy in the Tingle Arm. Uh, This fleet of ships was smaller than the one attacking Korriban and had a much different purpose. The small truce armada hailed Republic envoys and allowed them to get a few images before firing on the diplomatic ships. Those few images were immediately relayed to Coruscant due to the diplomatic nature of the meeting, and the Galactic Republic became aware that something was very wrong despite this advance warning and the news delivered by shan malcolm and o'car the republic navy was slow to mobilize and slow to respond days later when the republic had a had a fleet on the way to the tingle arm the true sith had already sacked the aparo sector the worlds and people of the aparo sector were hit so hard that they had no choice but to defect to the true sith when a Republic fleet did arrive, things didn't fare much better because the Sith had an ace up their sleeve. For years before 3681, the true Sith Ministry of Intelligence planted spies in governments across the galaxy, especially in the Outer Rim. Before the invasion, these insiders were able to turn three systems in the Tingle Arm to the true Sith cause, Cernpedal, Ruria, and Balakdon. Uh, so when a Republic fleet was mobilized, it was lured into protecting the three worlds, into protecting these three worlds, not knowing of their treachery. When the Sith fleets arrived to challenge their Republic counterparts, the worlds made their treason known, and the Republic fleet was stuck between a rock and a hard place. With the planet attacking on one side and the true Sith attacking on the other, the Republic fleet suffered heavy casualties the survivors made a desperate hyperspace jump, finding shelter above Mirial, home of the Mirialan people. After a fortnight, the true Sith military was undefeated in major battles and would remain so for
1: more than a decade. Before 3681 was out, the true Sith Empire would attack again. Moving out of the far northeastern end of the Outer Rim, the Sith attacked the planet Slusvan in the southern region of the Outer Rim, destroying its advanced Republic shipyards. Worse, they slaughtered thousands of civilians who didn't immediately swear loyalty to the true Sith Empire. The Battle of Slusvan was over quickly and acted as the precursor to the true Sith blockade of the Rimma trade route, which began with a Sith victory at the first battle of the Seswina Sector in late 3681. The Rima trade route runs from the Minos Cluster in the farthest southern reaches of the Outer Rim past Solist and Slusvan all the way to Abregato Rey in the Deep Core. The Jedi Council and Republic Navy sought to organize responses quickly but couldn't due to bureaucratic red tape and factional infighting. Eventually, this political gridlock would lead to a series of riots in Coruscant and allowed the true Sith to begin an attempted occupation of the Minos Cluster. Despite initially overwhelming the Jedi and Republic, the true Sith were never able to fully subjugate the Minos Cluster. This was partially due to the efforts of individuals like Jedi Master Orgus who personally defended the Sector for years, and also because the Imperial blockade on the Rima was broken by the Second Battle of the Saswana Sector in 3680. Intermittent battles would continue in the Minos Cluster until 3653, when the true Sith took it as their territory in the Treaty of Alderaan. We don't know anything else that happens until 3678, when the Republic made a valiant effort to retake Korriban from the Sith, which is told in the three-issue Old Republic comic arc, Blood of the Empire. It follows a pure-blood Sith named Exal Kresh, a descendant of the Sith Lord Ludo Kresh, who once challenged Naga Sadao for control of the Sith Empire. Exile Kresh was the Sith Emperor's apprentice, the only official student he ever had, but she portrayed this true Sith after discovering Vitae's nefarious plans. He intended to create a cadre of elite sleeper agents who would secretly be puppets of his will and fuel his test for immortality, and he intended to make Exile Kresh the first of these puppets. Kresh wanted no part of it.
0: Founded in 3978... The Children of the Emperor are another extension of Vitiate's ongoing quest for immortality. Four sensitive children were stolen from their families as infants and imbued with the Sith Emperor's spirit through Sith alchemy and then sent out into the wider galaxy. They would lead seemingly normal lives, but they were merely extensions of Vitiate's will as he would directly control their actions or transfer his essence in the event his host body was slain. Exile Kresh had once been the model Sith until she learned of the Sith Emperor's true intentions. We won't meet any of the children for quite some time, but they are central here. Exile Kresh seeks to destroy them, and a Sith assassin named Teneb Kel tries to stop her. Kel was formerly the apprentice of Lord Khalifo, who was discovered to be a traitor and executed. Kell was spared and sent on suicide missions by the Dark Council to prove his worth. In 3978, teneb was instrumental in reclaiming Bergerin uh, and was then tasked with hunting Exile Kresh, who was giving intel to Republic spies that would allow them to attack Korriban. teneb tracked Kresh to a world called Laniko, and the two dueled with Kel barely surviving. While fleeing, Kel had a force vision and was shown the Children of the Emperor before tracking Kresh to Korriban. The true Sith fleet battled the Republic fleet above Korriban Almost some Republic transports were able to land on the surface. Kresh used this distraction to sneak under the Valley of the Dark Lords and find the Children of the Emperor. Exal was ready to destroy this facility and bring down the Sith defenses, but was stopped. Teneb Kel appeared, and the two dueled, with Kresh nearly killing Kel before she was distracted by an ally of the Sith assassin. Kel recovered, but Kresh blasted him with force lightning so strong it melted his lightsaber. Uh, Kresh suspended Kell in the air with the force and went for the kill, but she forgot to watch her back, and Kell called the lightsaber of a fallen Sith to him, impaling his enemy through the back crash dead, the Jedi and Republic assault failed, and they were routed. Upon returning to Kaas, Kel demanded and was granted a position on the Dark Council in exchange for info on the Emperor's plans for immortality. He took the title Darth Thanatus.
1: If it seems random that we have vast amounts of info on somewhat minor events while knowing nothing about wide stretches of the war, that's because some events were portrayed in connected content from novels, comics, or cinematics. For instance, the Battle of Corbon and the Rise of Darth Thanaton appear in a comic, so we know much of what occurred. Whereas other events are only briefly referenced in-game, and we know comparably little. Since the war wasn't fleshed out in reference books like other conflicts, we just get the occasional references, and sometimes go years without knowing anything that happened. The only reference book we get on the era is the Old Republic Encyclopedia, which includes a lot of specifics on chip designs and the like, but not so much on the war, following the battle over Korriban in 3678. We don't know the exact date of a major event in the Great Galactic War until 3671. There are a couple of events that we know occurred by uh, 3671, but we can't firmly place. First is the Battle of Bomadon, which occurred in either 3674 or 3673, after which a Republic transport was shot down over the world. The stranded Republic soldiers formed a Gri insurgency with the people of Bomadon and drove off the Sith, though we know little else. The second event is the Battle of Balamora, which must have occurred during or before 3671. Now, Balmora becomes important during the main story, but right now you should know that the world has two important assets. First, it sits on the galactic dividing line between the core worlds and the colonies, both of which lie inside the mid-rim. And second, Balmora is a factory world that built battle droids and other military equipment. Due to resource constraints and their inability to break into the mid-rim, the true Sith lusted after Balmora. When the Sith arrived, they hacked Balmora's planetary defense systems and some factories of battle droids, turning them on their masters. However, the true Sith slicers did such a good job, the droids gained independent sentience, so the Sith commander just decided to use strategic orbital bombardments to solve the problem. However, a local resistance effort immediately got underway that would fight a guerrilla war against the Sith for more than 30 years until Balmora's liberation in 3642.
0: By way of reminder, the geography of the galaxy begins in the deep core, which surrounds the black hole at the center of the galaxy, proceeding outward in somewhat concentric circles. There's the core, where Coruscant is, then the colonies, the inner rim, the expansion regions, and the mid-rim. Finally, we reach the largest area of the galaxy, the outer rim, and past as wild space in the unknown regions. Almost every planet in the known galaxies east of the Deep Core with very little to the west, save for the generally unnavigable uh, unknown regions. By 3671, the True Sith had conquered more than half of the Outer Rim, including Illum, Dathomir, Manon, and Utapau, amongst many others. But that's not going to cut it. Many within the True Sith Empire, including members of the Darth- Dark Council, questioned why the war and their revenge was taking so long. A dozen years later, after the Great Galactic War began, the Republic had yet to win a significant victory, yet the true Sith still had trouble breaking into the mid-rim. What's taking so long? It's a valid question with two answers. Firstly, Vitiate and his true Sith fell victim to one of the most common problems in all of warfare. They failed to shore up their logistics. The Sith assumed they would overrun the Republic quickly and had no need for allies or logistical planning. However, resource shortages and weakened supply lines are problems that will plague the true Sith and slow their approach for decades. Secondly, though Revan could not prevent the invasion, he was still alive and continued to use his Force connection to Vitiate to temper the Sith Emperor's hatred and passion, thus slowing the pace of war considerably. The first problem is something that the members of the Trusith Empire uh, may be upset with, but can largely accept. The second problem is going to be an issue for Vishit down the line. But we're in 3671, which is one of the biggest years of the war. After the third battle of the Seswina Sector, the Trusith finally held Seswina and they were prepared to break into the Mid-Rim when news of the republic's loss in the third battle of cesswana broke republic citizens lost hope these feelings held until the first battle of bathawui when the republic and jedi defeated the sith in battle their first victory of the war
1: just after the third battle of Saswana, republic admiral greke began planning for a counteroffensive working with a highly advanced combat analysis droid named B3G9. Together, they determined that the true Sith would use Saswena as a jumping-off point, jumping point for a mass invasion of the Mid-Rim, and it would attack the strategically crucial Bothawui Sector. The Sector is, unsurprisingly, home of the Bothans, many of whom died to bring info about the second Death Star to the Rebels, according to Mon Mothman Return of the Jedi. Unfortunately, many Bothans are going to die here too, but not in the First Battle of Bothawai. The true Sith fleet was commanded by Darth Imrn, and it was massive, having just come off the victory at Seswana. The true Sith believed that the Republic fleet was still nursing its wounds from Seswana and eagerly jumped to Bothawai, intending to finally break into the mid-rim. However, because Admiral Greik and B3G9 had anticipated this move, they had mustered the entire Republic fleet on the far side of Bothowoy and were waiting to when the Sith arrived. The first battle of Bothawai lasted for 10 minutes. I uh, lasted, sorry, four minutes, an hour at the very most. That's the type of destruction we're talking about. Every ship under Darth Imran's command was obliterated as they came out of the hyperspace with the Republic suffering very minimal casualties. Though this was one of many Imperial fleets, the loss of a still hurt the true Sith, making their resource crisis that much worse. New ships have to come from somewhere, after all. The victory was a propaganda coup for the Republic, completely turning morale around after Saswena and making the future seem possible again. Because Star Wars is nothing if not World War II in space. Fearing the inevitable retribution, the Republic fleet broke up across the galaxy, but the Republic commissioned a state-of-the-art planetary shield that looks an awful lot like the big radio dish the Empire had on Endor, a battalion of 4,000 Republic troops, four Republic Special Forces squads, and specifically 84 Jedi Knights under the command of Jedi Master Balth Alusis. They were under no illusions. The true Sith retribution would be swift and terrible, but they would make the Sith pay dearly.
0: About 27 standard days after their decimation, the true Sith returned to Bothawui with a vengeance. A massive fleet, far larger than the one under Emern, arrived, but their orbital attacks were ineffective due to the nifty planetary shield. The shield generator for the shield was guarded by the Republic troops and Jedi Knights under Jedi Master Eleusis and had been placed strategically deep in the Bothan Forest to prevent direct attacks. The Sith forces under Grand Moff Zelos attempted a frontal assault, however, and soon found, and soon found out the resolve of the defenders. For every one Republic defender killed, ten Imperials died. Zelos poured on the soldiers, but the defenders of Bothawui used guerrilla tactics in the world's dense forest to ambush the Sith forces with turrets and traps. The type of tactics you'd expect from an overmatched army fighting off a superior force in a heavily wooded setting. Eventually, after days of repelling direct assaults and mowing down Sith, the final defensive perimeter around the shield generator was breached. Zelos had called in his last reinforcements, but called a halt to the advance upon seeing the remaining defenders led by Master Eleusis. The member of the Jedi High Council had a couple dozen survivors at his back, and they prepared to make a valiant last stand at the facility entrance. Zelos offered quarter to any who would surrender, but none did, preferring to fight a hopeless battle for the light than live enslaved to the dark. Balthalusis and his comrades made the Sith pay for every inch, and by the time the last of them were dead, the Sith didn't even have enough soldiers to run a proper occupation of the planet or fully staff and protect the shield generator. The final casualty of tr- the final ca- the final tally of casualties shows this was nothing if not a Pyrrhic true Sith victory, as the entire force of four thousand troops, four special forces squads, and eighty-five Jedi Knights, including Master Eleusis, killed more than forty thousand invaders. The Second Battle of Bathoe was a draw that ultimately favored the Republic, where the deaths of Eleusis and his defenders was turned into a successful another successful propaganda campaign, to the to the point that it was called the turning point of the Galactic War, Great
1: Galactic War. The next four years saw a change in fortunes for the Republic as they used the tactics of both the First and Second Battles of Bothawui to devastating effect against the True Sith. They began to win battles and inflict heavy damage on the True Sith Empire. In 3668, a special forces operation undertook a successful mission to capture the Dread Masters, a group of six ancient Sith lords who served as prophets and advisors to Vite. Just prior to their capture, the Dread Masters had begun using a dark side version of battle meditation that created fear in the crews of Republic ships, causing them to make random hyperspace jumps and disappear. This power had been used on such a scale that one small Republic fleet had totally gone missing. The Dread Masters were seemingly impossible to track until a Jedi Knight named Jarek Caden discovered that they used a mobile command center abro- aboard an Imperial dreadnought as their base of operations. Armed with this information, Caden and a group of Republic Special Forces soldiers tracked the Dreadmasters Dreadnought and intercepted the ship, seemingly killing all six of the Sith Emperor's advisors in the firefight. However, the reality was that the Dreadmasters were far too valuable to the Jedi Council, and they were transferred to the top-secret maximum-security prison called the Tomb on Belsavis in the Outer Rim. The Dark Council was incensed at the loss of the Dread Masters and decided to attempt a daring raid on the core worlds to regain the upper hand in the war and deal a blow to Republic morale. Alderaan was viewed as a peaceful, beautiful world that embodied the Republic's ideals, so the True Sith believed it would be the perfect place to strike. That brings us to 3667 and the Battle of Alderaan, which is portrayed in the second cinematic Hope. Darth Malgus was placed in charge of the attack, having recently been granted the title of Sith Lord. Malgus was a master of deceptive tactics and was able to lure most of the Republic fleet away from the Core Worlds, but Alderaan wasn't undefended. A small group of Jedi, led by Satel Shan, were on the planet to investigate possible Sith influence in local politics. Meanwhile members of Republic special forces were on Alderaan to recuperate at its famed medical centers.
0: Despite being heavily outnumbered the battle of Alderaan would be one of the republic's greatest victories in the war but it didn't start out that way. With the republic fleets away the truseth fleet jumped to Alderaan and began an orbital bombardment that decimated hundreds of cities in, in killing millions of civilians after the initial bombardment Darth Malgus led his forces to the planet and began systematically burning and pillaging the bucolic splendor of Alderaan Malgus was brutally effective capturing the royal family to serve as hostages and killing all others that came across Satel Shan mobilized her Jedi to respond and got a message out to Coruscant requesting reinforcements Sean's message was received and reinforcements were dispatched, despite both the Republic Senate and Jedi Order believing that Alderaan was lost to the Sith. However, reports of Alderaan's demise were greatly exaggerated, at least for another 3,600 years or so. Even though the Sith had destroyed many cities, their intel was bad and they moved in a slow, ground based march toward the capital, expecting no resistance. Unfortunately for them, an entire battalion of Republic forces known as Havoc Squad was taking a break from the war on Alderaan at the time of the invasion. They immediately regrouped and took up defensive positions across the world, engaging the Sith in small groups using hit-and-run tactics. At the time, Havoc Squab was unaware of the Jedi presence on Alderaan and vice versa, at least until the Force showed Satil Satilshan a vision of Captain Jace Malcolm in need of aid. She immediately set off running to find her old friend and aid in whatever way she could. As Darth Malgus approached the capital with a large retinue of battle droids, Sith troopers, Sith Lords, and even his girlfriend, a group of Havoc Squad soldiers was lying in wait. This is the point where the cinematic trailer begins with Malcolm and members of Havoc Squad jumping from an elevated position and cutting Darth Malgus' slow-moving caravan in half with an ambush.
1: The ambush was a momentary success as the handful of Republic Special Forces soldiers destroyed numerous battle droids and even killed a Sith lord or two. But after this initial flourish, things started going downhill. Malcolm saw Malgus across the Alderaanian forest floor and fired explosive rounds, scarring Malgus's face before being subdued and knocked unconscious by Force lightning. Not enough to kill, just enough to incapacitate Malcolm so he could be executed. When the fearless Republic soldier regained consciousness, he was surrounded by death as his fellow members of Havoc Squad were being executed at the hands of the Sith or cut down in battle. Darth Malgus wouldn't give him the pleasure, so he masked Sith, who sort of looks like one of the Knights of Ren, prepared to execute Jace Malcolm, who sneered defiantly. But just when all looked lost and Alderaan seemed destined to fall to the true Sith, the cavalry arrived. In this case, the cavalry is Satalshan, who projected the Force through the ground to push all three Sith off of Malcolm, saving his life. But saving the Republic and Alderaan was now a secondary concern for Satel shan because her old nemesis Malgus was leading the Sith. Fourteen years before, Malgus killed Shan's Jedi Master above Korriban, and she was ready to get some revenge, even though it was not the Jedi way. However, Satel shan also single-handedly saved Alderaan, so we'll let it slide this once. Sean rose and brandished her newly built double-bladed lightsaber, singling out Darth Malgus. Havoc Squad rallied in the confusion and began fighting off the true Sith while the two old enemies dueled in a clearing. The duel was ferocious with Malgus taking the upper hand before Sean pulled a massive tree down with the force. The duel continued on the felled tree and then to its stump, where Sean avoided being bisected by flipping over Malgus, only to have her lightsaber cut in half as she landed with his opponent disarmed and staggered. Malgus went in for the kill, stabbing down at Sean, but the Force is a powerful ally, and this was not Satel's day to die. As the red lightsaber thrust downward, Sean used a Force technique known as Tutaminus to deflect the energy of the lightsaber's blade with her hand, essentially catching it with the palm of her hand.
0: She caught a fucking lightsaber. I mean, if you don't like that, I don't know what you're doing here. But catching the lightsaber was only half the equation. Malgus was over his initial shock at Shan's incredible use of the force and pressed his lightsaber into his enemy's palm even harder, hoping to break her defense. But Chase Malcolm, who is as brave as he is foolhardy, ran headlong into Malgus trying to make an NFL-style blindside tackle. Now Malcolm had no hope of tackling Malgus to the ground. Not only is Malgus a beefy Sith Lord but also a powerful force user, but that wasn't Jace's goal. He was giving Satel time to recover and finish the Sith Lord off by staggering Malgus and then detonating an ion grenade between them. A normal grenade would have blown both their heads off, but the ion grenade just burned and scarred both their faces, which is becoming something of a trend for Malgus who is now missing parts of his cheek and jaw. Uh, Malcolm was again knocked unconscious. Malgus was staggered, and Shan used the opportunity to end her nemesis once and for all, throwing him up against a sheer wall of rock. Malgus fought against Shan's onslaught, but then she sent a wave of force energy that crushed the Sith Lord into the mountainside and shattered the rock behind him. In the aftermath, Malcolm regained consciousness and sent a signal flare up calling for a rescue. At the same time, other Havoc Squad members across the planet did the same, and the reinforcements Shan requested arrived. The arrival of the Republic fleet caused the Sith to beat a hasty retreat, though they were able to recover Darth Malgus before departing. In the aftermath, the Republic was riding high both from their string of oppressive victories and because they were able to snatch victory from the jaw of defeat. For his heroics, Malcolm was promoted to general and commanding officer of Havoc Squad. Jace Malcolm and Satel Shan also began a secret romantic relationship that would last about six months and produce a child named Theron Shan. Sattell broke the relationship off with Malcolm after learning after learning she was pregnant and fearing the rising darkness in the Republic soldier. The run of good Republic fortune would continue for another two years as they liberated mid-rim systems and pushed back against the Sith and the Minos cluster. That all changed in 3665 at the Battle of Hoth. In
1: 3665, Sattel Shon. Colonel Laren and the Republic Fleet were escorting prototype ships through the Star of Coruscant, including the Star of Coruscant, a super dreadnought that was going to be used to strike at the true Sith Empire's capital of Dromand Kaas. The mission and the fleet were both top secret, but a secretive enclave of the Chiss Ascendancy on Hoth intercepted communications from the Republic, indicating that their plans would lead them right past Hoth soon. Though the Chists reside in the unknown regions, they were allied with the true Sith and duly turned over the info onto the Republic's secret fleet. As the Republic fleet passed through the Hoth system, they were ambushed by a newly arrived Sith fleet under the command of Admiral Lyak Davos. Each fleet consisted of hundreds of ships and dozens of snowfighters, and, though it was dubbed the Battle of Hoth, the fighting was spread over a number of adjacent star systems. Fighting across multiple systems left each fleet heavily damaged before they met for a final confrontation above Hoth. During this fight, the Republic did their best to protect the Star of Coruscant, but the fighting was too fierce and Hoth's gravity well was too strong. The prototype ship was eventually shot down, but its hull and shielding were so strong it crashed on Hoth fully intact where it would become a pirate base for more than 20 years. The Republic fought bravely, with one ship destroying sixty Sith fighters before it was destroyed, and the crack team known as Victor Squad took out twelve battlecruisers before all its members were killed, too. Finally, after days of fighting and both sides losing more than a hundred ships and thousands of soldiers each, the Sith were victorious when the Star of Coruscant was scuttled and the remaining Republic fleet fled. Both Sean and Sith Admiral Davos survived, but Lara Nomas died in the fighting along with his prototype ships. The losses were scattered across many systems, but Hoth saw the most intense fighting and, as a consequence, became a massive ship graveyard for quite some time. Despite suffering heavy losses, the Battle of Hoth was later seen as a clear, true Sith victory and would be pointed to as a turning point that led to the end of the war 12 years later.
0: The Republic losses at the Battle of Hoth were so devastating that their fleets still had not fully recovered four years later when the true Sith unveiled its newest ally, the Mandalorians. Due to resource constraints and the lengthy war, the Sith were in need of allies in the galaxy who could attack or otherwise hinder the Republic. Now, given the enmity the Mandalorians had for the true Sith over the whole tricking them into declaring war to soften up the Republic thing... You'd think that the Mandos would avoid the Sith like the plague. And for nearly 300 years, the Mandalorians refused all true Sith overtures. Even Mandalorians who had become bounty hunters refused to work with the Sith no matter how much they offered with limited exceptions so a new strategy was implemented. Back in 3667, the Sith selected a slave warrior from the Geonosian Gladiatorial Rings to be their champion and they began fixing fights so he was guaranteed to win. By thirty nine or thirty six sixty five, the fighter had become champion and resigned undefeated. And resigned undefeated, taking up the title Mandalore and gathering his people around the galaxy. Though they were skeptical, many still followed the old ways, and thus heeded the call. The Mandalorians were once again reborn. This time as a small fighting force. In 3661, the Mandalorians made their return to the galactic stage in a big way, showing off their alliance with the true Sith by blockading the Hydean Way, a major trade in hyperspace route. The blockade was incredibly effective as the Hydean Way is the only hyperspace route that runs through the entire galaxy from the colony regions in the north all the way to the outer rim past Iriadu in the south. The blockade lasted for a year and caused a resource crisis for the wealthy core worlds that were dependent on outlying systems for necessary resources like food and fuel. As the blockade wore on, the Republic Navy was unable to make any headway resulting in months of rioting on the lower levels of Coruscant due to starvation. This caused the Jedi to lead an attempt to break the blockade near Deveron, but they met with failure and a number of Jedi Knights and Masters were killed in the process.
1: The Republic needed to break the blockade, and it needed to do so quickly, as political pressure began to mount in favor of capitulating to Sith to end the resource shortages. Normally, the Republic could have overrun the Mandos, but its fleets were still short-handed from the Battle of Hoth. Where still, the Republic and Jedi forces in the Outer Rim began losing ground everywhere, suffering suffering losses in both the Minos Cluster and at Ord Radama in 3660. With the situation becoming desperate, the Republic and Jedi were rescued by an unlikely source. An expert smuggler named Hilo Viz saw the opportunity to make enough money for several lifetimes by breaking the blockade and running supplies to the Republic. Viz convened a group of smugglers on Nar Shada, and together they hammered out a plan. Knowing that their ships were lighter and faster than the Mandalorian's, The smugglers would send a small contingent to distract the Mandos while the rest of the fleet of smugglers jumped out of hyperspace behind the blockade. This would catch the Mandalorian fleet between two forces and hopefully break the blockade, but it was not without risk. The smugglers would be outgunned and they couldn't risk allying with the Republic and having the plan found out. However, Republic spies were tipped off and mobilized a small fleet in a nearby system to aid the smugglers when the time arrived. A few ships of unknown origin jumped into the system out of the Mandalorian fleet's firing range. The smuggler ships then made erratic movements and repeatedly ignored comms from the Mandalorians, who eventually sent some ships to investigate. This was the signal Hilo Viz needed, and she ordered the rest of the smuggler's fleet to jump in behind the Mandalorians. The smaller smuggler ships ran circles around the Mandalorians, and the battle favored the band of pirates for some time, but the Mandos had them outgunned badly. However, the Republic fleet had perfect timing and jumped into the system, surprising the Mandalorian fleet. The Republic and Jedi ships pro- provided support for the smugglers, and the Battle of the Hidian Way br- became a rout. The remains of the Mandalorian fleet fled, and the blockade was broken.
0: On Coruscant, Hilo Viz and her smuggler friends were greeted as heroes, and the Republic paid exorbitant prices for the supplies, but no one seemed to mind. The Galactic Republic had been saved by an unlikely band of heroes, and they deserved a reward. Either that or they were engaged in war profiteering. It depends on your point of view. Regardless, the Republic planned a large medal ceremony for Viz and her associates, but Hilo fled with her fortune. Her planning, bravery, and leadership had saved the Republic, and for her trouble, the and smuggler, Hilo Viz, now had more money than she could ever spend in her life. One of the smugglers, Zael Burroughs, became a merchant admiral for the Republic, fighting the true Sith competently for years. The Sith Emperor and his Dark Council, meanwhile, were furious at the failure and desperate to end the Great Galactic War. The Empire decided to try a new strategy that will eventually lead to the sack of Coruscant in seven years' time. With the Hydean Way free again, the Republic got much-needed supplies to the Core Worlds, ending the Coruscant riots. Additionally, the Republic was also able to reinforce the scattered guerrilla forces holding out against the Sith on Ord Radama, pushing them all the way back to Sith space. There in 3960, the Sith and Republic fought three battles at Korriban, Zyost, and Ashes Re, each being won by the Sith. Darth Malgus was co-commander in each of the three battles, and despite losing each, the Republic strained Sith resources even further and pushed them back to their so-called seat of power in the Outer Rim. After the Battle of Ashes Re, the Republic fled to Sereno and were pursued by the Sith under Darth Malgus, who sought to capture Jedi Master Vin Zalo after multiple confrontations. Though Zallo and the Republic fleet lost the battle and fled, Malgus was able to begin an occupation of Sereno. Near the end of 3660, the true Sith and Republic again fought at Ord Radama, with the battle lasting for 51 days and both sides suffering heavy casualties, including further attrition to their depleted fleets. The Sith ended up winning and reconquered Ord Radama, but the victory was decidedly pyrrhic.
1: After the Sith reconquest of Ord Radama, there's a six-year gap where we know nothing. From 3659 to 3653, we don't know of a single specific event that occurred during the Great Galactic War. Battles, troop movements, and territorial exchanges occurred during this time, but we don't know anything more than that, which brings us to 3653, the final year of the war. By this time, the Great Galactic War had been ongoing for 28 years, killing trillions in the process. Now there are only three battles left at Renvar, Dantooine, and Coruscant, starting with the Battle of Renvar. You may recall that Renvar is a frozen world covered in ice and snow, where Ulicaldroma was redeemed and became one with the Force. The true Sith sought to conquer the Outer Rim planet and exploit its resources so that Darth Mekis, a scientist and members of the Dark Council, could build and test her weapons of war. But just like she did on Alderaan with Darth Malgus 14 years earlier, Shan was going to ruin Mekis' party. Initially, the Sith advanced unchecked on Renvar, but the Republic Navy soon arrived, led by four Jedi, Sayo Bakum, Bella Kikwix, uh, um, Jarek Kaden, and Shan. All four Jedi were, incidentally, taught by the same Jedi Master, Nagani Despite the heroics of the Jedi and their Republic troops, the Sith used chemical weapons on the battlefield, releasing poison gas. While Bakalam used his healing prowess to erase the pain of wounded soldiers, Shawn rallied the remaining fighters to continue the attack. The Sith believed victory was imminent, but the Jedi soon laid siege to Mecchis' fortress and carved their way through the enemies protecting the entrance. The Sith Lord attempted to release some of her experimental weaponry, but Chan arrived and the two women dueled. Mecchis was formidable. But if Satal Shan can catch a lightsaber, you don't stand a chance. Shan won the duel, but Mechus escaped despite suffering severe injuries, and the Republican Jedi kept Renvar out of Sith hands for the time being. Meanwhile, the Battle of Dantooine was ongoing, and the Republic looked to have the upper hand, but the battle would continue for days. In the end, the Battle of Dantooine will be one of two battles waged through the end of the Great Galactic War and into the Cold War. We will revisit it next episode.
0: Regardless, any Republic gains would be a moot point because the Sith Emperor's plan to force a conclusion to three decades. Because of the Sith Emperor's plan to force a conclusion to three decades, four, a plan born out of desperation and necessity, the true Sith Empire would invite the Republic to Alderaan to negotiate terms for a lopsided peace treaty favoring the Sith, while simultaneously attacking Coruscant to force the Republic's hand. Right about now, you're probably thinking, if they have the capacity to attack Coruscant, why don't they just occupy the capital of the Republic and be done with it? It's a good thought that has two answers. First, as we noted earlier, no foreign entity or government can conquer Coruscant and the Republic before Palpatine does it in Revenge of the Sith. See, we told you at the beginning that it would be important, and here we are. Uh, The the meta reason does lock in the story, but the second reason does make sense within the context of the war thus far. Despite all the damage the true Sith had inflicted on the galaxy and the fact that they appeared to be winning across multiple theaters of war, it's just not feasible for the Sith to sack and hold Coruscant. Even if they had won all those those theaters, their entire power base was still far from the core worlds in the outer and mid-rims. There's a vast difference between sacking a capital for leverage and sacking a capital to permanently occupy it. No, there was no possible way to make that stick. But a surprise attack that takes the Republican Jedi off guard and holds the capital hostage, forcing the Republic to assent to a peace treaty that overwhelmingly favors the true Sith? Oh yes, that could work. Additionally, the Empire had seen that the Republic rallied around the Core Worlds following the Battle of Alderaan and the breaking of the Hydean Way blockade. An attack on Coruscant would demoralize citizens who believed the world was effectively untouchable. They would agree to any terms presented, even if they were far in excess of what the true Sith actually won in battle. To the Sith Emperor and his Dark Council, the attack on Coruscant seemed like a big risk, but also a necessary expedient as the fastest way to end the war on terms that wouldn't cause an Imperial revolt. So, under the guise of peace negotiations, the true Sith invited the Republic and Jedi to Alderaan and sent a fleet to Coruscant. In case it isn't obvious, the sacking of Coruscant is the other battle that spans both eras.
1: The sacking of Coruscant in 3653 is one of the events we have the most knowledge about because it appears heavily in a lot of tie-in content. The sack is the setting for one novel called Deceived and a cinematic trailer, confusingly also called Deceived. It also appears in flashbacks in two novels and is the partial backdrop of a three-issue comic arc. Darth Malgus was asked to plan the assault as he had engineered several successful surprise attacks during the war. This required Malgus to do recon on Coruscant before the attack, which he did, taking his Twi'lek slave and lover, Alina Daru. Based on the intelligence gathered, Malgus developed a plan that took a great deal of strategic planning with a ton of moving parts. The Sith had to take, Coruscant, take the Coruscant defense grid down without alerting the Republic. This was to be accomplished by Malgus's Mandalorian ally, Shea Vizla. Then... Sith warriors would be loaded into a stolen Republic transport, which would be used as a battering ram against the Jedi High Temple's 100-foot-tall front doors that also act as a narrow gate. At the behest of Darth Engril, the theater commander for the assault, Lord Adras was named second in command for the Jedi Temple attack and put in charge of the stolen transport. In order for the transport to make it close to the Temple, a distraction would be needed to occupy the Jedi for about a minute. This distraction would be provided by Darth Malgus and Alina Daru. Meanwhile, a second force would attack the Senate district, thus taking both centers of Republic power. This group would be led by Darth Angral. Finally, a fleet would need to maintain a blockade above Coruscant and, according to Malgus's plan, unleash an orbital bombardment to level the entire capital. The Sith Emperor and the Dark Council were never going to order the entire city planet be destroyed, as that would have ensured the peace treaty failed, though Malgus wouldn't learn the bombardment had been called off until later. Meanwhile, the diplomatic envoy on Alderaan would be led by Darth Aras, who was instructed to string the negotiations along. The Sith Emperor and Dark Council approved, with the exception of the orbital bombardment.
0: Now we come to the beginning of Deceived the game's first cinematic trailer released way back in 2009. A generic-looking republic transport drifts slowly towards Coruscant's atmosphere while a hooded Darth Malgus approaches the door to the Jedi High Temple with only a Twi'let companion in tow. Malgus stalks his way up the long stone walkway lined with massive, graven depictions of Jedi long past that leads to the front door of the Jedi High Temple. This has been the home of the Jedi for 344 years since Asus was scoured of life when all the stars in the Kron Cluster were forced to supernova simultaneously by a superweapon at the very end of the Great Sith War. The High Temple... The High Temple edifice is quite similar to its appearance in the prequels, a large stone building with four columns jutting skyward at each corner, and a central column towering above the others where the council chambers reside. When Malgus and Daru reach the landing just outside the door, they are approached by members of Republic security who are guarding the temple while most of the Jedi are out fighting the war. Indeed, if the temple were fully staffed with Jedi, this plan would never work. Maugus makes sh- short work of the soldiers, and Daru signals to Shea Vesla to take down the defense grid. At this point, the stolen transport has about 30 seconds before it enters temple airspace, and if the grid isn't down, the transport will be shot out of the sky. Visla works fast, using her jetpack to enter the upper levels of the temple through an exposed exterior vent, making quick work of the Republic troopers guarding, this- guarding the defense grid's central hub. The Mandalorian sliced the computer system and brought the grid down without alerting the Republic or Jedi. T-minus 20 seconds to battering ram. As Malgus enters the front door of the Jedi Temple, we see that he wears a cybernetic respirator and vocal modulator that covers his mouth and jaw, the results of the wounds he suffered at Alderaan. Within the Temple entryway, a group of six Jedi led by Jedi Master then Zalo moves to confront Malgus and Daru, but Zallo sees the transport bearing down and realizes that the Jedi have been deceived. T-minus ten seconds to battering ram.
1: From the temple's second floor, Padawans watch the tense confrontation, unaware of their impending doom. The Jedi knights behind Zalo ignite their lightsabers, but Malgus doesn't move. He barely breathes. Seconds later, the deception becomes apparent to all as a stolen Republic transport and NR2 gully jumper crashes through the temple's massive stone front doors. What was once a narrow choke point, barely wide enough for a few people to walk through, is now a gaping hole in the Jedi defenses, leaving them open to attack. The transport breaks through the stone doors and crashes into the entryway, its wings cutting down load-bearing stone columns, causing much of the second floor to collapse the transport has now lost both wings and slides to a stop just behind Malgus, who is still unmoving. As soon as the transport stops moving, one of the side doors opens to reveal Lord Adras and twenty Sith warriors, all of whom ignite their red lightsabers. Only then does Darth Malgus move, looking up at the Jedi arrayed before him. I don't stand a chance. Adras and his Sith pour out of the transport while Jedi Knights stream out of doors and hallways into the temple entryway to, to defend their home. It's Jedi versus Sith in the Jedi Temple on Coruscant as dozens of lightsabers clash. The fight turns into a brutal mess as fallen Jedi and Sith lay everywhere. The Jedi Temple is now suffering extensive structural failure and has become a maze of dead ends, fallen columns, and collapsed floors. The Republic troops who would provide backup to the Jedi are being distracted by Shea Vizla, who flies by on her jetpack, spraying them with rockets and her flamethrower. Alina Daru is holding her own as well until she saw Ven Zalo and fired some blaster bolts at him, which he expertly deflected right back in her direction. Daru took two body shots and was thrown against a downed wall by Zalo, which enraged Malgus. During the battle, Malgus had already been seeking Zalo, believing the Jedi Master the only one worthy of dueling him. The attack on Daru, though done in self-defense in the heat of battle, somehow made Malgus, who's already a very angry person, even angrier.
0: When Darth Malgus saw his girlfriend get hurt, he went on a rampage. He let out a force scream that Zal... At Zalo, that was dodged, but leveled a stone edifice on impact. The two leaders ran toward one another, cutting down any who stood in their way, and their lightsabers met with tremendous force. Malgus had chased Master Zalo across three battles in 3660, but wasn't able to catch his quarry then. He wasn't going to let the Jedi Master get away this time. Malgus rained blows down on Zalo, who could barely deflect the Sith Lord's rage and was sent sprawling by a roundhouse kick to the face. The Jedi Master cut the legs from an attacking Sith Warrior and killed another with a slash across the chest before Malgus threw his lightsaber at Zalo's neck. The Jedi Master was able to dodge the lightsaber, but Malgus force-pushed Zalo through a downed wall and leaped over, bringing his blade down for the kill. Vin Zalo avoided the attack and was even able to land a hard blow on Maugus' respirator before going in for the kill with an overhead slash. Unfortunately for Zalo, and his Jedi Malgus anticipated the attack and quickly impaled the Jedi Master, who died looking on the ruined doors of the Jedi Temple. As he became one with the Force, Zalo saw battle droids and Sith troopers marching up the steps and Imperial Star Destroyers, which contained Darth Angrel's strike force descending from the sky. Malgus and his Sith forces ransacked the temple, killed as many Jedi as they could, and then used explosives to destroy the temple. As the columns and walls imploded, the onlooking Sith cheered. At this point, Malgus and others still believed that the plan was to destroy Galactic City, effectively crushing both the Republic and Jedi seats of power. But Malgus isn't a politician, he's a Sith fundamentalist who doesn't care about the consequences of committing mass atrocities. To Malgus committing genocide against the Republican Jedi is the whole point. It's a war of revenge. Malgus doesn't care that raising the entire planet would be used as an ironclad casus belli for the Republican Jedi, turning this war into turning this into a war of revenge to the death. He doesn't care that they are in a war of attrition and both sides need to take a break to recover, Lean this to say, Malgus won't be pleased when he finds out.
1: Meanwhile, on Alderaan, the Republic envoy sent to meet Darth Baras included Syrian Senator Paran Amris and two Jedi, Master Darnala and Knight Satel Shan. Other reps were on Alderaan too, but Amris and the two Jedi would negotiate the terms. Little did they know that Darth Baras held all the cards. Back on Coruscant in the Senate District, Darth Angrel's forces descend, and whereas the attack on the Jedi Temple went exactly according to plan, the attack on the Senate District is going to encounter problems. The plan was that no politicians would be killed, but that didn't last past the first hour. At the Senate building, Angrel burst into the Supreme Chancellor's office and found him sending a message to Alderaan, telling the envoy to back off the peace talks, Darth Angril quickly assassinated the Mon Cal Supreme Chancellor to end the message, but his actions were shown on the hologram. At this, Satel had heard enough and drew her double-bladed lightsaber, charging at Darth Baras, who raised his own lightsaber in defense. Baras explained that the peace talks would continue, but the Republic would have to agree to all the terms stipulated. At the urging of Master Darnala, Shawn backed off and the Sith Lord presented them with a document known as the Treaty of Coruscant, Written by Baras himself. Following the death of the Supreme Chancellor, the true Sith on Coruscant cut comms, leaving the envoy on Alderaan in the dark and forced to trust Baras. Sean and the other Jedi did find out that Master Venzalo had been killed after his Padawan, Arin Lanier, felt his death through the force on Alderaan. That's not much, but if Venzalo is dead, then things must be really bad. Coruscant had been sacked, that much was clear but the envoy didn't know the extent. With the Sith holding the Republic capital hostage, there was no choice but to accept the priest treaty, no matter how lopsided it was. Master Darnola and Satel spoke with Jedi Grandmaster Zim via hologram, who agreed that the treaty had to be signed and required Jon to apologize to Boros for her actions. Despite agreeing to the basic framework of the Treaty of Coruscant, the terms of which we will discuss next time, Negotiations would continue for a couple more days over smaller points of contention.
0: Back on Coruscant, the Sith wanted to move from invasion to temporary occupation, but parts of the city planet fought back. Despite both the Jedi Temple and Senate District being under Imperial control, there are Jedi and Republic troopers in the city who fight back on their own terms. Jedi Master Orgus Din and Republic Lieutenant Heron Tavis were two such fighters. Earlier, Master Din briefly dueled Darth Angus in front of the city building and was nearly killed, only to escape when a damaged Imperial Star Destroyer crashed into the planet nearby. Din and Tavis then encountered Grand Master Zim, who was supervising aid workers. Zim ordered Din to travel to Balmora to deal with his former Padawan, who was causing trouble. Tavis and Dim were able to flee Coruscant before it was locked down, though they will come to the aid of some fellow Jedi on their trip. After a few hours, Coruscant was burning. Although a full orbital bombardment was out of the question, the Imperials still fired on the surface from star destroyers and bombers, killing millions and leaving even more refugees. The citizens of Coruscant fled for the lower levels for safety, but the Sith just fired down the large circular access shafts, causing massive damage and casualties on the lower levels too. The capital now faced refugee and healthcare crises simultaneously as citizens were displaced with no comms and Republic hospitals were flooded beyond capacity. Finally, Darth Angrel began the temporary occupation phase, called off all Sith attacks, and instituted martial law across the planet. Angrel did allow medics and other aid workers to tend to the injured and dead a small mercy. All injured Imperials were moved to the medical ships in the Sith Fleet, though Lord Aedrus left Alina Daru in a Republic hospital as a slight against Malgus. After relishing the Jedi Temple fall for a few hours, Malgus realized that no bombardment was coming and he met with Angrel to let, make his displeasure known. Later that day, the Republic agreed to the terms of the Treaty of Coruscant. Even though the occupation of Coruscant would last for a couple more days, the Great Galactic War was over after 28 years. Now, an 11 year long, very warm Cold War begins.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, We will get closer to the main story of Swotor by covering the events of the Cold War. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or you can email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm LucasAmazing
0: on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.